our text this morning consists of four verses in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And in this text, Yahweh is commissioning Joshua to be the successor to Moses. And so he speaks to Joshua directly, and there is every reason to assume from the text that this came to Joshua in an audible voice, not from a voice inside his head. This wasn't something he imagined. This was not a vague sense of direction that came from his own imagination. And in fact, you'll notice this, that whenever God speaks directly to someone in Scripture, it is always in a clear voice. Even when Yahweh speaks to Elijah in a gentle whisper, there's no ambiguity about the message. And when the voice of Almighty God is giving instructions like these, there's no question about who is doing the speaking. I say that to set that apart from so much that we hear today from charismatics who say, well, the Lord told me this or whatever, and when he didn't. But here in verse 1, we are told Yahweh spoke. And the message notice, is clearly articulated. This is not a vague sense that the Lord might be leading Joshua. This is a crystal clear message delivered in specific words, and in fact, the exact words are recorded for us. And I'm going to read it, but before I read the passage, here's some context here. Moses has just died, and Moses' death was one of the most remarkable deaths in the Old Testament. Scripture makes a point of telling us that despite his old age, Moses was in perfect health. Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. Now Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So that's a way of saying he was in perfect health. Moses, you know, was not a a self-important or domineering kind of leader. Numbers 12, verse 3 says that the man Moses was very humble. And in fact, it says, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But then there was that one occasion in Numbers 20 at Meribah when Moses sinned in front of everyone. He he lost his patience. He lost his temper with the people of Israel. He lost his sanctification. And as a result, he lost his right to accompany the Israelites into the promised land. And commentators are divided over precisely what Moses did wrong. What was it? The, the Lord told him to speak to the rock, and, and he struck it instead, because he did do that. In fact, he struck it twice, and instead of speaking to the rock, he yelled angrily at the people of Israel. And so here's the reality. On several levels, it seems, he totally lost it. He, like, had a tam- temper tantrum in front of everybody. Now, while Practically all of us who've ever been in a position of leadership or parenting can sympathize with Moses' frustration. This public display of human anger was so egregious, whatever it was he did, so egregious, that the Lord severely rebuked him and permanently restricted him from ever entering the promised land, which is a a remarkable punishment for a man like Moses who had led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness to get to the promised land, and the Lord says to him, you can't go in. Numbers 20, verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. James 1, verse 20, because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so that's why Moses died when the Israelites reached the doorstep of the promised land. Moses' death did not come as a surprise either to Moses or to the people of Israel. In fact, three chapters back from this in Deuteronomy 32, Moses actually makes a farewell speech to the Israelites. And and this is interesting. He gave most of his message to them in the words of a song and, and it was not like any of the choruses we sing. This was a long, fatherly scolding, full of rebukes and warnings, 42 verses of reproofs, rebukes, and exhortations. And by the way, this, this song expresses the exact same frustration that Moses felt when he lost his temper in front of everyone. But this time, he conveys his concerns for them in a sanctified manner in an inspired poem, really. 
And then we read Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. Yahweh spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the uh, Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you both, that is you and Aaron, acted unfaithfully with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you both did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. So this is a a bitter disappointment for Moses not to enter the promised land, and the people of Israel undoubtedly sensed what a bitter blow this was to Moses, and they knew they were largely responsible and that they were the ones who provoked him to anger. And Moses himself held them partly responsible, and he told them so. Deuteronomy 3, verse 26, he told the Israelites, I also pleaded with Yahweh at that time, but he was angry with me on your account. And he would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, enough, speak to me no more on this matter. In other words, Moses had repeatedly implored the Lord to relent and let him go into the promised land until the Lord finally told him to stop asking. It's hard stuff, isn't it? That's practically the starting point of the book of Deuteronomy, and the book then ends with four chapters describing Moses' death. So Deuteronomy is bookended with the story of Moses' bitter disappointment as he is kept out of the promised land. And then in the final verses of Deuteronomy, Moses does get to look at the promised land from a nearby mountain, and Yahweh says to him again, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the command of Yahweh. And then Deuteronomy 34, verse 8 adds this, The sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So that's the chronological point where the book of Joshua begins. Joshua 1, verse 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, that Yahweh spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' attendant. So Joshua was like the assistant guy to Moses. And Yahweh commissions Joshua now to lead the Israelites. He will basically step into the role of leadership that was vacated when Moses died, Verse 5, Yahweh says, Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And verses 2 through 5 then are an extended promise of victory in the conquest of the land and the destruction of the Canaanites. Yahweh assures Joshua that this land belongs to Israel. Verse 2, I am giving to them the land. Future tense. And then verse 3, I have given it to you. Past tense. So, What Scripture is saying is the land already belongs to them. All they have to do is take possession of it. And Joshua's task is to lead them in that quest. And make no mistake, this was a call to war. The Canaanites were not going to hand over the keys to the promised land willingly, and therefore the instructions that follow here in our text tell Joshua that he needs to prepare for a long series of bloody conflicts. And the whole nation understood this. Moses himself had told them back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and stronger than you, and when Yahweh your God gives them over to before you, and you strike them down, then you shall devote them to destruction. You shall cut no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Now, notice the language here, because people are troubled by this. This is God telling them to wipe out these seven tribes that are stronger and more numerous than them. But the language makes it clear God is the one doing this. The slaughter of the Canaanites is not a genocide carried out by cruel people merely to gain political advantage. This was a divine judgment for the extreme wickedness of those tribes. 
whose abominations, frankly, are too gross to be described in detail. And then now in Joshua 1, we have Joshua's marching orders for this difficult task that lies ahead. And Yahweh begins with a a detailed promise in which he not only guarantees victory, but he also promises his abiding presence. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Notice, those are all promises. Those are guarantees. Those are divine assurances that Joshua can count on and be certain. This is the sure and certain word of God. And then our text, starting in verse 6 through verse 9, shifts into the imperative mood. In other words, what follows now are commands given to Joshua. This is his military commission with orders from the highest military high command. And this is our text, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. And then the next verse says that Joshua immediately took the reins of leadership and began to lead the people of Israel. Now, I want to show you that the the four verses we are looking at are a commission given to Joshua, but there are principles here that apply to every Christian, and this charge to Joshua contains these principles that apply to each one of us, all of us. You got that? This same underlying principles that are given to guide Joshua in the context of the conquest of, of Canaan, these all apply to us as well. Because if you study this passage in depth, you will discover that every key element of this passage is repeated and elaborated on in the Apostle Paul's New Testament epistles. Everything God commands Joshua The Apostle Paul commands to the whole church. His instructions to Timothy and Titus in particular parallel closely this passage in Joshua. The same basic principles the Lord stresses with Joshua are therefore, first of all, apostolic and pastoral duties, but they are also Christ-like qualities. And since the Apostle Paul told the entire Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ, therefore, these instructions filter down and apply by implication to all of us. This is what it means, in part at least, to be Christ-like. Now, Scripture recognizes that the Christian life entails an element of warfare. People today don't like this idea, but it's there, and you can't miss it in Scripture. Paul says to Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Fight the good fight. In fact, the apostle repeatedly likens the Christian's earthly life to warfare, and it is. It's spiritual warfare, but it is real warfare, unlike the The battles that Joshua was facing, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful truth. And yet we are in a, we are in a, don't minimize it because we say, well, it's a spiritual war, so it's it's not a big deal. It is, it's a bigger deal actually. We are in a conflict where the stakes are much higher than mere physical warfare because what is at stake here is eternal. And the principles that make any person fit for spiritual warfare are exactly parallel to these instructions in the book of Joshua. The instructions God is giving him, notice, this is not, even to Joshua, primarily about physical conflict. He's giving him principles for spiritual warfare. For example, notice in our text, the repetition of words that speak of strength and courage. Those two ideas 
run repeatedly through this whole passage. And now, listen to how Paul instructed Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.3, that's where Paul tells him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then two, four, two verses before that, he says, you therefore, my child, be strong. And he also encourages Timothy to be courageous. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, because God has not given us a, a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or, Paul says, of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. And furthermore, just like Joshua, Timothy was commanded to study and meditate on the word of God and never let that cease being the chief thing that fills both his mind and his speech. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth and preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. So I hope you see that every element in the charge that's given to Joshua here is repeated and emphasized in the New Testament's instructions to us as Christians as we engage in spiritual warfare, which is why this text is so important, and it applies really in a very personal way to you and to me as much as it does to Joshua. And it intrigues me that as Joshua is handed the responsibility for leading Israel, other than this admonition in verses 7 and 8 about keeping the word of the Lord at the center of his focus, nothing is said to him about methodology or style or tone or strategy. He's not told to be clever or creative or nuanced or savvy with regard to the tastes and the values of the Canaanites. But the commands Yahweh gives him make a very short list. And specifically, he is to be constant and courageous and consumed with the word of God. Very simple command. And notice, courage is actually the dominant element here. It's the very heart of the matter. Fortitude. Yahweh is calling Joshua to exemplify a kind of masculine courage. Stout-hearted, fearless tenacious bravery, steadfast immovability, especially with regard to the Word of God. Don't let it escape out of your mouth. Not meaning don't talk about it, but don't ever stop talking about it. Now again, let me point out that three times in the span of four verses, the twin virtues of strength and courage are specifically named. In fact, look at the text, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, more emphatically, only be strong and very courageous. And then verse 9 reiterates this command with some extra detail. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be in dread or be dismayed. Now I call this masculine courage, and I know there are people listening to me who will cringe to hear me speak of strength and courage as manly virtues, because our culture bombards us with relentless propaganda trying to get us to deny that there is any such thing as a masculine quality, except toxic ones. And in fact, that's the other alternative. They want us to believe that masculinity itself is toxic. And it's quite true that women can and many do exhibit both strength and courage. That's To call it a manly virtue doesn't mean women can't exemplify this. But the courage that is called for in this context is a distinctly masculine trait. These are instructions for a man leading other men into combat. And the point in labeling it a masculine trait is not to suggest that women can't display courage or that women aren't courageous. That's, that's not the idea. Women certainly can be and are courageous. I know, a lot of, I know a lot of women who are more courageous than the men around them. But when a man lacks courage, he is being unmanly. There are today many evangelical leaders and people, even within the church, who are so steeped in the androgynous values of postmodern culture that they've gone along with whatever is politically correct, and they refuse to acknowledge that there are basic immutable differences between men and women. But there is this stubborn fact 
that Scripture itself speaks of wives as the weaker vessel. In other words, the Bible acknowledges that by God's own design and by God's own purpose, strength is generally more natural to men than to women. And if you doubt that, ask all the women swimmers who keep getting beat by a guy who wears a dress. So, so Scripture clearly acknowledges that both strength and courage belong to the category of manly virtues. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 makes that exact connection when it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So here in Joshua 1, Yahweh is basically telling Joshua to be a man, man up cultivate the manly qualities of strength and steadfastness and, above all, stout-hearted courage. These are absolute essentials for godly spiritual living. And, And so there's a bit of a conundrum here, because when it comes to spiritual living and the sanctified walk, even women are supposed to cultivate these manly characteristics, because we're all called to be Christ-like, And Christ represents the measure of true manhood. In Ephesians 4.13, the Apostle Paul tells the entire church that we should all seek to attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a command that applies to everyone in the church, including women. Likewise, that verse I quoted in 1 Corinthians 16.13, it's addressed to men and women alike, the whole church, So when the apostle says, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, he includes even the women in the church. Be strong like you want men to be. He's not telling women here to usurp any role or office that belongs to men, of course, but he is telling them to be spiritually mature, manly in the strength and steadfastness of their faith. Now, the culture in which we live and minister is so far gone so overwhelmed with the idea that masculinity itself is toxic and so devoted to the feminization of all public discourse that even many supposedly evangelical pulpits have become platforms for girlish sentiments and soapboxes for feminist dogmas. And so I need to say this. Muscular strength and manly courage are virtues, They are not flaws and defects. They are not inherently toxic. And yet we've reached a point in the church where you are almost certain to be scolded if you speak with strength and courage against any of the popular falsehoods that dominate our culture. If you say this transsexual person is not really a man, it's a woman, you're going to be scolded. You might even get kicked off Twitter. You probably will be. Scripture commands us to arm ourselves with the truth. If you speak with courage and clarity these days, you're almost certain to be openly rebuked or even scornfully subtweeted by someone who will pretend that they're more sanctified than you and and, and they'll try to get you to shed or at least to soften the the militant tone. You're going to be told you'll have a lot more influence and be a better testimony if you just back off a bit and hold your beliefs with a little less certainty and you don't have to challenge every error and do whatever it takes to avoid conflict. Just listen rather than quoting scripture. And, and let's be honest, there are some people out there who probably do need to soften their tone. And Scripture admonishes us not to be like Moses was when he lost his temper. Second Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the full knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there are times, uh, in fact, usually, when it's best to hold your human anger, which doesn't work the right righteousness of God, but it's a different thing to soften the truth itself, to avoid the hard truths because you know people are going to be offended. Don't do that. Again, our enemies are not flesh and blood. What we do in spiritual warfare is tear down those 
ideological strongholds uh, that keep people captive in order to liberate people who are, who are caught up in these wrong worldviews and wrong systems of thought. The goal here is not to crush people. There are some self-styled warriors out there who I think don't seem to understand the distinction. It, it's not people we are warring against, not flesh and blood, but bad ideas. And it's also true that a thirst for conflict is a disqualifying characteristic. You know, elders in the church are are not to be pugnacious. 1 Timothy 6.11 You, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And again, remember the whole reason Moses was barred from entering the promised land with the Israelites was because he lost his temper publicly with people he was supposed to be leading and ministering to. But while we cultivate those characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit, let's not deny that we are also called to wage warfare against the falsehoods that keep people in bondage. Christians are supposed to have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. And there's a dearth of wise spiritual discernment these days. Strong and courageous biblical discernment is not incompatible with biblical compassion. And in fact, it's an absolute essential to be discerning if you truly want to be authentically Christ-like in the way you show compassion. Is exactly what the command in our text implies, namely that you and I have a duty to adopt the spirit of Joshua and lay waste to the worldview and the values of a secular culture that is already encroaching on the level of wickedness that doomed these Canaanites to absolute destruction. We live in a culture that's that bad already. In fact, let me say a little more about this because I know lots of people are conflicted about it Even some of the large evangelical coalitions seem absolutely bent on eliminating any kind of militancy, eliminating any kind of militancy from the message the church conveys to the world. In fact, it's for several generations now, it's been deemed politically incorrect to sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. We don't sing that anymore because it just doesn't sound nice. And we're told constantly, we need to be more winsome. And it's true that Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart, meek and lowly. But he also made a whip and turned over tables and boldly drove a herd of money changers off the Temple Mount. He never backed away from a conflict with the Pharisees. He never softened his criticisms or or toned down his teaching or cushioned his message so that they wouldn't be triggered. But on the contrary, There are many times when it's clear from the New Testament that Jesus purposely provoked the false teachers amongst the Pharisees, not because he loved conflict, but because he loved the truth of God's word, and he couldn't stand to see it corrupted with the Pharisees' man-made traditions. In fact, no one has ever been more fierce in the battle for truth than Jesus. That was true during his incarnation. And listen to how scripture portrays him at his return. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Again, Christ is the epitome of manly strength and courage. And let's be honest about the state of things in the current generation. We have soft, timid, faint-hearted leaders in the church. They're not actually in in short supply. I question whether evangelicals really need to hear these incessant admonitions telling us to tone down the message. We hear it all the time, you know, ease up on the militant words and, and imagery, lighten up on the reproofs and rebukes and exhortations, and just seek to encourage everybody with the positive idea that God really loves them. And mainstream evangelicalism today is dominated by this craven desire to avoid conflicts at all costs. And yet, I don't think there's a single historic Christian conviction that isn't currently under attack 
in one way or another by people who self-identify as evangelicals. Doctrine itself is being torn to shreds by all these niceties. And, you know, first we had, and this has been true for decades, first we had the seeker-sensitive churches, then the emerging church movement, and now there's a gaggle of voices within the large evangelical coalitions telling us incessantly, don't be so disagreeable. Contending earnestly for the faith is overrated. Winsomeness is so much more strategic and f- than forthrightness. If we hope to win, especially people in these postmodern times, they don't like strong convictions and, and settled certainty. So l- let's speak to them on their level. In fact, I wonder what Joshua's commission or Timothy's instructions for leading the church would sound like if those instructions were written by some of today's evangelical pundits. You know, instead of be very strong and courageous, I think it would say, be delicate and nuanced. (laughs) And I'm convinced they would tell him, avoid conflict at all costs, and above all, avoid open conflict with the academic, intellectual, or political elites who have so much influence in our culture, you don't want to upset them. You need to seek their esteem and their admiration. And that is how some of the best-known leading evangelicals today try to operate. And meanwhile, the secular world is becoming even more set against the truth of Scripture than ever. The current generation of young adults have been indoctrinated with postmodern values since they were in preschool, really, they automatically protest against every expression of certainty or courage or conviction, and especially biblical conviction. Notice, the badges of the current generation are safe spaces, trigger warnings, comfort animals, participation trophies, Everyone is supposed to feel good about themselves, and and it's considered uncharitable to say or do anything that might upset someone's self-love. Biblical virtue and biblical values have been turned on their head so that vulnerability and victimhood are celebrated today and deemed heroic. But strength and courage and masculinity, these have been reclassified. These are no longer virtues. They're called microaggressions or social faux pas, or toxic attitudes. Manhood itself is toxic, and and it's seen as a major threat to this fragile and feminized culture. Strength and courage have been replaced by sensitivity and victimhood as virtues that are most prized in our culture. And that's not a good thing. And it's not good for the church to cater to that. Secular minds have so completely bought into that notion that we literally have a former Olympic decathlon gold medalist leading a parade of men who now self-identify as women. Does that not strike you as so bizarre that if somebody had told you 20 years ago that would be how we're living, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say, stop the world, I want to get off? At the highest level of the federal government now, we have two men who masquerade as women and openly celebrate a laundry list of the grossest kinds of sexual perversions. And what's most ominous about secular culture's assault on manhood is that lots of sympathy and even some support for that trend has begun to creep into the evangelical movement. Attacks on masculinity among evangelicals have reached epidemic levels, and the push to allow women to preach or to be ordained now comes from people who used to call themselves complementarians. These days, they call themselves soft complementarians. It's a fittingly girlish adjective, soft. They want to be known as soft because the world values sponginess and despises steadfast immovability. And so they cultivate fear instead of courage, namely a a craven fear that they might seem odious in the eyes of a watching world when masculinity is thought of as toxic. So instead of speaking clearly and standing against what is really one of the most dangerous trends in our culture, the evangelical mainstream has begun to absorb and embrace it. It's almost as if today's evangelicals believe friendship with the world is a smart strategy for evangelism rather than an evil attitude that would set us at enmity with God. 
which is what Scripture says. In short, the church has no business embracing the fragility and feminization that has so crippled all of Western society in these postmodern times. And real manliness starts with Christ-like strength and courage. And then it's crowned with all the other virtues, Christ-like virtues, uh, that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Again, Ephesians 4.13 explicitly defines what it means to be a mature man, and it is when we achieve the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And that includes his strength and his courage and his steadfastness, his love for the truth, his opposition to falsehood, and yes, his gentle, lowly heart of compassion for the people of God, and especially the tenderness of the shepherd who leaves the 99 on the mountains and goes in search of the one that is straying. But true Christ-like masculinity is also embodied in the watchman who enters the place of worship with a whip, seething with righteous indignation, and drives out those who have made it a robber's den. The task Joshua was commissioned for was analogous to that. The Canaanites were not driven from the land for any reason other than their own extreme wickedness. They had made themselves loathsome and detestable to God by creating a culture that in many ways mirrors what we see around us today. And again, it wasn't an act of human cruelty to exterminate them. This was an act of divine judgment. Israel was not a bullying oppressor. In fact, this wasn't even a trained army. These were a ragtag crowd of people who had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness This was the most unlikely group to conquer these tribes that were well-practiced in warfare and violence. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? And so you know today that it is Yahweh your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may dispossess them and make them perish quickly just as Yahweh has spoken to you. And by the way, the Israelites were not being given the land because they earned it. They had been stubborn and disobedient. Repeatedly, since the day they left Egypt more than 40 years ago, Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. So you shall know that it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving this good land to you to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And then the passage goes on to rehearse a list of Israel's failures. But the Canaanites and their cousins were larger nations with bigger and more well-trained and well-equipped armies, And the successful conquest of the promised land wasn't going to be because of Israel's military might. This was a divine judgment, pure and simple. Deuteronomy 9, 4, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. And it was going to be clear to everyone that this was the Lord's doing. The the repeated command for Joshua to be strong in chapter 1. This is not telling him to beef up the military. This is not even about Joshua's personal, physical prowess. The strength it's calling for him to cultivate is the strength of character and virtue and steadfastness, skill in teaching the scriptures specifically, and of course, great fortitude in the midst of so many enemies that he was facing. And the Hebrew imperative in all three places, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, it's the same word each time, and it means stand strong. Be firm, be resolute, harden yourself. And it's talking again about his character. The Hebrew word for strength actually includes the idea of courage. The word translated be courageous in all three of those verses is a completely different Hebrew word, but it likewise has the connot- all these connotations, strength and steadfastness, determination, even obstinacy. And so this is a double imperative using synonyms to tell him, stand strong and firm and do it with great courage. And it's clear, isn't it, that the the place where he is to make his stand and not budge 
is verse 8, this book of the law. Again, it's the truth of God's word. That's where every true Christian must stand and refuse to move. And the Lord gives Joshua three encouragements to bolster his courage, three reasons for him not to fear in the face of what appeared to mortalize to be, to be overwhelming odds against him and the nation. Three reasons. The first is God's promise. Now, as I pointed out at the beginning, those opening verses of Joshua 1 are simply statements of promise. God is assuring Joshua that the promised land already belongs to Israel, verse 2, the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. Verse 3, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. So the land is theirs. Again, they just need to take possession of it. Verse 6, then, is a command, but it is specifically linked to God's promise, and the promise is confirmed with an oath. You shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. What could be more encouraging for Joshua than Yahweh's own pledge that the land belonged to Israel as their inheritance? In fact, verse 6 in the King James Version says, Unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. And the Hebrew term there has that connotation of an inheritance that must be divided and distributed to the rightful heirs. So again, the point is, it already belongs to them. They just need to possess it and divide it properly. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 says, All the promises of God are in him, amen, and yea, unto the glory of God. So God's promises are as sure and certain as he is immutable. And in this case, he not only made the promise, then he confirms it with an oath, verse 6, I swore to their fathers to give them the land. And Hebrews 6, 17 says that when God confirms his promise with an oath, it is to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. So he guaranteed it with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. These two unchangeable things are his promise and his oath. And so the oath on top of the promises multiplies the motive for Joshua and the Israelites to be courageous. And there's a footnote here. Notice verse 4. The exact boundaries of the promised land are are laid out for us from the wilderness and this Lebanon even as far as the great river Euphrates all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory the wilderness there that speaks of that covers the whole Sinai peninsula to the south all the way to the border of Egypt the northern border extends through Lebanon The eastern boundary is the Euphrates River, and the western boundary is the Mediterranean. Now, historical fact, Israel did not possess all of that land until the time of Solomon. 1 Kings 4.21 says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. So that's the whole promised land. But even then, notice, it's the land of the Philistines. They didn't rid the western sector of those Philistines. The Amorites continued to trouble Israel well past the time of David. So Israel never fully completed the job that God gave them to do. But don't draw the wrong conclusion from that. This doesn't mean that the promise of God failed. Israel's failure to possess the land was owing to their own unbelief and unfaithfulness. This was was no deficiency or duplicity in the promise of God. And in fact, that promise will be literally fulfilled and more when Messiah returns and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But for Joshua, the promise was a powerful motive for him to have the strength and courage that he would need to lead this generation of Israelites. That's the first motive, God's promise. Here's a second one. We'll call it God's provision. Remember, he is questioning, God is commissioning Joshua to to lead Israel into war against seven nations mightier and more numerous than them. And I don't know about you, but if, if I'm Joshua, I'd want to be supplied with some very heavy weapons, right? But instead of carnal weapons, Yahweh directs Joshua to his word. 
Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now, it's significant, I think, that the command is not to let the word of God depart from his mouth. It doesn't say his eyes or his mind or his hands. And in fact, uh, I noticed this reading John Calvin's commentary on this text. He points out that the way this command is worded shows that Joshua was to study and meditate on the law, not merely for his own personal benefit, but he's the teacher of the people under his leadership. The implication is that he is to be not just their military captain, but also their instructor in Scripture. They didn't have copies of the Bible to carry with them. There were no doubt already scribes making copies of what Moses had written down, but there was no way in Joshua's time that the Pentateuch would be easily available to everyone. And so one of Joshua's main duties was to teach the people what is in this book of the law. And he was to do it constantly. That's what this command means. Just do this nonstop. Keep speaking the law of God. Keep teaching it to the people. And this is important. The promise then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. That's often quoted and, and claimed in a way that unfortunately divorces it from its context. This is not a general uh, promise of success in business or material prosperity if you memorize and learn the scriptures. It's not a promise to you about that. Keeping God's word in your heart is conducive to every kind of legitimate success, but then, in fact, that principle is a general truism, and you'll find it, if you want, in, in Psalm 1 and also throughout Psalm 119 and also in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. But this verse, our verse, is a promise to Joshua that he will be successful in his military campaign to possess the land if he keeps the word of God at the top of the nation's priorities. And that same principle holds true for the church today. That is what shapes the philosophy of ministry that we follow here at Grace Community Church. That's why everything we do, virtually everything we do, is centered on God's Word and the teaching of God's Word. All of the currently stylish church growth experts and books on ministry philosophy, they all seem obsessed with gimmickry and missional strategies that aim to attract big audiences and make Christianity look more appealing to unbelievers. But the truth is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And clever strategies and attractional gimmicks, those are precisely the kinds of carnal weapons that we're commanded not to use. And in the list of spiritual armor given to us in Ephesians 6, there is only one offensive weapon, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what Scripture is telling us is that is a sufficient provision. In fact, it's more than sufficient. Israel saw this lesson in real life during their very first incursion into the Promised Land at Jericho when the the walls collapsed and the city was routed simply by the power of God without any siege engines or without any trained army because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, pulling down of strongholds. That is, again, 1 Corinthians 10.4. And the weapons the Apostle Paul is referring to there are the doctrines, reproofs, corrections, and righteous instructions of the Word of God. Those are the only true and effective weapons that we have for the kind of warfare that we as believers are to be engaged in. Now, God's promise was sure and reliable. God's provision was powerful and sufficient for the pulling down of strongholds. Here's a third reason Joshua should be strong and courageous. And this is number three, God's presence. God's presence. Verse 9, If I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. And that's an echo of verse 5. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And notice the first part of that verse, verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Because if God is for us, who can stand against us? Right? I can't think of any stronger encouragement to fortitude, courage, 
than the knowledge that God is with us wherever we go. Isaiah 41, verse 10 says, God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And in fact, that truth that we are secure because God is with us, that's embodied in one of the names of Christ, Emmanuel. God is with us. And Christ makes this same promise even more emphatically to all of us in Hebrews 13, 5, he himself has said, I will never desert you nor forsake you. And in the closing words of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now again, the words of Yahweh to Joshua in this passage apply in principle to all of us as Christians. We have the Lord's promises, exceeding great and precious promises that his word is effectual, that it will not return void, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and that in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We have the Lord's provision, his word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we have the Lord's presence, In the words of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread of them, for Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So don't be tempted to imitate today's stylish evangelicalism. Don't be impressed with that. Don't lean on human wisdom in your ministry to your neighbors and your family and your friends. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, and also with great strength and courage. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to serve you faithfully in such corrupt surroundings, Give us grace to be strong and steadfast, confident and courageous, and purge from us any half-hearted cowardice. Make us bold and Christ-like. We confess our own weakness and worry often cloud our testimony for Christ. So give us both fortitude and faithfulness, and conform us more than ever to the likeness of your dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.